You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Please join me in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you say the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Church, remain standing for one moment before I dismiss Redemption Hill kids. I want to let you know, parents, um, what the kids in ages five to nine will be learning this morning. And once again, we're gonna, I'm going to read the question, and then with me, let's say the answer out loud. So here's the question. The question does come from the New City Catechism, but the response comes from our confession of faith as a local church. Does Christ's death mean all our sins can be forgiven? With me. Though whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. Amen. You may be seated. We have, if it serves you parents, um, Redemption Hill kids for kids ages 2 to 4 in one class, then also 5 to 9 in another class. If kids, if you stay in, I'll say this once again, and I say it every time. Almost, you guys probably like, stop saying it. No, I'm going to keep saying it. Kids, you're never a burden when you're in the service, whether it's right now or whether it's in family worship on the days we don't have redemptional kids. You're never, ever a burden. Never once. Okay. Uh, we do have totes in the hallways as well. So if kids, if you are staying in, um, those, those totes serve you. There's a bunch of goodies in there. You can grab those. They're right at the table, just right across the hall. All right. As you know, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, pausing, for, as you can see, we were in <laughs> Hebrews, right? Uh, so we'll get back into the Sermon on the Mount next week. Uh, the reason for the shift is this. I wasn't planning on preaching because I was gone all week, but some things happened where I had to preach this morning, which is great. I was looking forward to it when I got the call that I'm like, hey, I can't pull off a sermon. I'm like, I'm on it. <laughs> um, but I really wanted a message about the local church. Because next week, many of you, some of you, will be becoming members of Redemption Hill Church. So I kind of want to frame that next Sunday with this message from Hebrews 10. It's a message about the local church, but it's a message about entrance first into God's universal church, and a message about what it looks like to exist in God's local church. So Rob had it right when he said, this particular passage has a logical flow. And we're going to see both, right? What does it mean to be entered into God's church? And then what does it mean to just like exist, right? And so I'm going to pray for God's help, and then we'll get into today's text. 
pray one more time. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and that it's clear and instructive and good for us. So I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would speak and teach our hearts this morning. Give me clarity of words, O oh God. So I pray for your help once again. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do we gather together? Right? Just throw the question out there. Why do we gather together? Why do we show up every Sunday to worship God? Why do we commit ourselves to like being in community with one another? Right? Some of you are in community groups. Some of you connect with other people in the church in various ways. Like, why do, you, why do we do that? What is all this for? Uh, the New Testament gives us many answers to these questions. Ephesians 5.19 says that we need to sing hymns and songs and spiritual songs to one another. Like we did that this morning. Like as you were singing upward to God, guess what? You were singing to one another as well. You are singing truth to each other. That's the reason why we gather. 1 Corinthians 12 is clear that we need each other. I know it's fashionable to be like, I need my pastor, but you know what? I need you just as much as you need me. 1 Corinthians 12 makes that clear. Each member in the local church serves with purpose. While we are one body in Christ, there are many members. God gives each person in the church gifts to use in the local church. Every single one of you has something to offer and none of you are insignificant in God's church. It's so cool and trendy to find the hip people and, and allow them to do everything and pull them up front. That's not how the local church is supposed to be. You have something to offer. And yes, I mean every single one of you. 1 Corinthians 12. That's why we gather. Another reason. In Galatians 6, we're called to carry one another's burdens. In the same chapter in Galatians 6, it says we are to keep watch over each other. Like, we need to have each other's back. Like, I love old, like, war movies. Now, war is ugly. You should grant the premise there. But one thing I love about watching old war movies is that the dudes had each other's back. Like, if I say I'm going in, I'm going in the jungle, there's like 10 other guys who are saying, I'm going in with you. All these scriptural examples, and there are plenty more. Now, they were written by the Apostle Paul to local churches. Very specifically, I'm writing to you, local church, about how you should live in your local church. In one sense, he was trying to connect their theology with their Christian living in the local church. We read in Holy Scripture the design for the local church, and we also read in the pages of Scripture, how people are supposed to function. We say it differently. We show up with purpose. You show up with purpose. I think it's abundantly clear in the New Testament that God establishes local churches so that you can faithfully pursue Christ with a bunch of other people who are trying to faithfully pursue Christ. I mean, think of it this way. You will not understand the depth of Christ-like love when you're disconnected from the local church. Because that, that, that the expression of Christ-like love happens here. You cannot experience genuine biblical community when you're not a part of a local church. 
Few people will spur you on to become more like Jesus unless you're part of a local church. Sure, we have Christian friends outside of this local church. I was just in Frisco, Texas, and it was wonderful. I was with a bunch of other pastors, brothers in Christ. We were singing praises to Jesus. We were encouraging each other on. That's great. But at the end of the day, what do we read in the pages of Scripture? God has established a local church, but we are spurred on to Christ-like love. I was thinking like a, a picture of what the local church is like, and this picture came to mind, and it's frightening, actually, um, for me. Uh, you ever see people like scale a mountain, a group of people? Like they're crazy, like on the crazy one to 10, 10 being the crazy, they're like on the 10. And that might be you, and that's cool. But I've seen that. And then it's a group of people, and they're all connected to one another, right? And here's, here's the takeaway. Together, they live together, they die together. Until you die or Jesus comes back, God has established the local church for you to grow in your relationship with the Lord. And as you grow, God is glorified in your life. If I could sum up why this local church has been established and why we gather, like why did we plant this church three and a half years ago? Why do we continue to gather as a local church? I would sum it up like this. We gather together. Redemption Hill gathers together first to glorify God. We want to bring glory to God in everything we say and everything we do. And we want to love each other well. When our friends are grieving, we want to love well. When there's a wedding, we want to love well. In the mundane moments of life, we want to love each other well. That's why we exist. You're not going to get entertainment from me. It's not why we exist. We're not here to put on a show. It's not why we exist. And frankly, why we exist is so much, so much more than that nonsense. This morning, I'm going to look at Hebrews 10, which shows us how the gospel and how believing in the gospel does push you into community with other Christians. Say it like this. Your entrance into the community results in specific commitments to live within the community, right? That's the flow of Hebrews. You focus on the gospel. That's the entrance into the community. Then what does it look like to actually exist within this community? Before looking at Hebrews 10, 19 to 25, I want to sum up the book of Hebrews for you. Like, what's the context of what is being said here? I'll do it with three words. Book of Hebrews, like, hey, sum up the Hebrews for me. Be like this. Jesus is greater. <laughs> three words. Someone asks you, what's Hebrews all about? Jesus is greater. Now, of course, there's more detail but that's ultimately the message. If you haven't studied Hebrews, the flow of the book is simple, and the content is rich. It's actually the best exposition of the Old Testament is the book of Hebrews. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, Old Testament dude, right? And Jesus is the greatest sacrifice. Entrance into Christian community goes through the door of the sacrificial death of Christ. So that, that last point that I just mentioned, Jesus is the greatest sacrifice, is now the local literary context of today's passage. And it's this last point that informs 
what we're looking at this morning. And before looking at Hebrews 10, we read this at the end of Hebrews 9. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Of course, this is Christ. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Even in Rob's prayer this morning, we are eagerly waiting. But until that day, we continually look at the sacrifice of Christ to put away sin. So Jesus was on mission to save his elect people, and he continues to be on mission. And then leading up to verse 19 of Hebrews 10, the author goes out of his way to explain how the old way, the old covenant, has been filled by the new way, the new covenant, in Christ. The old way, focusing on the law and repeated sacrifices, is fulfilled by the new way. Jesus is now the focus and the greatest and final sacrifice for sin. Now, if you were to sit down with perhaps a, an educated um, Jewish friend or let's say an Old Testament scholar, you'd read Hebrews 10 and they would likely understand the depth of what is being communicated more than most Christians, right? I mean, look at verses 19 to 22 of Hebrews 10. What are the holy places in verse 19? What does a curtain have to do with the sacrifice of Jesus? Verse 20. What's up with the high priest in verse 21? And then in verse 22, there's this verbiage of hearts being sprinkled and bodies being washed with pure water. All of these images are connected with Jewish and actually really Christian theology are now being metaphorically used to describe the work of Christ. The author of Hebrews, what he's doing, he's reaching back to these religious practices to explain why Jesus is the final and greatest sacrifice for sin. The author of Hebrews is explaining why faith in Jesus, entrance, right? Entrance, should spur us on to faith with others. I mean, there's a lot to untangle, but what I think is being said in this passage is that what we believe to be true about God and our faith is connected with how we live. What we believe and how we live help us to explain why we gather as a local church. The first word in verse 19 indicates a transition of thought taking place in the book of Hebrews. It's therefore. So whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask what comes before. Before verse 19, we read an excellent exposition of why Jesus is the great high priest and the final and greatest sacrifice. Then in verses 19 and 21... We read a summary of what has already been stated. Then leading up to verse 25, we read three horatory subjunctives. I know it's like if you're an English major, you just freaked out. Uh, I'm not an English major. I just read this in a book. But I take his word for it. Three horatory subjunctives in verses 22, 23, 24. Horatory subjunctives are exhortations a speaker uses to urge other people on. So it would be like me saying, hey, who's coming with me to my house after church to have lunch? Come on, let's go. You know, I'm just trying to, I do this all the time with preaching. I'm trying to get you somewhere. I'm trying to get you and others to go somewhere with me. And so Paul does that three times. He says this. He's like, let us draw near. That's the first one, right? And then he says, let us hold fast. And he says, let us consider. He's trying to urge us on and lead us into a particular direction. In verse 22, it says, let us draw near. So let's look at that one. 
read this leading up to that. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So even looking at, before looking at the oratory subjunctives, let's actually untangle what's going on with all this imagery. So what are the holy places referenced in verse 19? To understand these terms, you need to understand, like I said, the Jewish tabernacle. Got to go back to the Old Testament. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was a gathering point for God's people. We read about the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. Take your pages, go back to the second book of the Bible. The tabernacle was a tent-like structure located at the base of Mount Sinai, and in the, it's always in the center of the Israeli camp. The tabernacle and the tabernacle sacrifices, which we read about in Hebrews 10, were pillars of Jewish faith before the temple was built by King Solomon. The tabernacle is how Israel understood what it means to be in the presence of God. That's really the, the bottom line question. What does it mean to be in the presence of God? So sacrifices in the tabernacle are how people were like forgiven of sin. And you just do this over and over. One sacrifice out of, an, out, of, out of another, right? Because here's the fundamental problem that the tabernacle and the tabernacle sacrifices try to solve. Evil exists, right? And the place where evil resides is the human heart. And the question is, how can a good, just, and holy God be in the presence of evil? Well, he can't. Something needs to be done. So instead of wiping out humanity and all the evil and sin that humanity causes, God provides another way to be reconciled and forgiven. He provides another way to blot out sin. Here's what needed to happen for you to be forgiven of sin in the Old Testament. There was an animal sacrifice. Like, I know that seems foreign to us. Like, our 21st century sensibilities can't quite get our mind around that. That was quite common thousands of years ago. The animal sacrifice symbolized the death that God's people deserved because of their sin. We call this atonement. And when the animal died, the blood was taken and sprinkled on the tabernacle. Now, this seems, again, seems like, what's going on here? This was symbolic of purification. All this would have made sense if you lived back then. But it's important because we see what Jesus is fulfilling in Hebrews 10. So in this tabernacle, there were three rooms. The outer sanctuary, and then the next room inside the outer sanctuary was the holy place. And then going further in was the most holy place. Depending on who you are or your status, you could enter into these three different rooms. Now, I know that my description of the tabernacle does not do it justice, but what you need to know is that the tabernacle was a big deal because it was in there where someone could enter into the presence of God, right? That was the whole idea of the tabernacle. You want to get to the most holy place. If you want to experience the presence of God, this is where you go. And only once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go to the most holy place to make an animal sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins for Israel. The idea is that the sinless animal would be a sacrifice on behalf of the people. So we got the tabernacle thing going on. The curtain referenced in verse 20 was thick and acted as a wall between the holy place, which all priests were able to enter, and the most holy place, where like only one dude got to go into a year. So we got this most holy place, curtain, and then the holy place. And he, sacrificing 
Because like the great high priest, Jesus, the sinless son of God, can enter the presence of God. So you see the kind of connections that are going on in Hebrews. Jesus, sacrificing himself on the cross and spilling his blood for the sin of his elect people, provides a new way for God's people to enter the presence of God. That's the whole point of Hebrews in Hebrews 10. Formerly, we did it like this, but now Jesus has done it like this. So through faith in the atoning death of Christ, by his blood, we can now go behind the curtain and enter in to the presence of God. Growing up uh, during Christmas, during the Christmas holidays, there was a forbidden room in the Powers house. So myself and three other brothers, we knew that in November, December, we could not go to this room located off my parents' bedroom. Um, we knew it was forbidden, and this is where all the Christmas presents were located. <laughs> and only once a year did my mom and dad finally take these presents out of the forbidden room and place them under the Christmas tree. And of course I snuck in, you know, to figure out what's up there. What Christ has done by allowing his people to go behind the curtain will be like all four boys having access to the forbidden room every moment of every single day. So I hope you see that how the imagery connects with Christ. Because Christ is the great high priest and the final ultimate sacrifice, anyone who has faith in him can now draw near to God. You don't need to grab the bull. You don't need to grab the goat or the dove. You'd have faith in Christ. Here's now the question. When you enter into the presence of God through faith in Christ, when you kind of go through the front door, what does the house look like? And who else is in the house? What we read beginning in verse 22 is that you enter into the presence of God with other people. Here is the first subjunctive in verse 22. Let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So there's more imagery going on here, but first, see the depth of your faith in Christ. Because of Christ and the faith he has given you, you can have full assurance. You can be assured that God loves you. You can have full confidence that his favor, regardless of your circumstances, is upon you. So receive the exhortation. Let us draw near to God with a true heart. Christian, before you were saved, your heart was cold and dead. When you were saved, God took out your stony heart and gave you a heart alive with faith. Ezekiel calls this a fleshly heart. Listen, because we are human, there is remaining sin. And we can tempt to believe the lie that we can't approach God. You ever been there? I can't believe I just did that. I can't even go to God. No, you can. You can boldly approach God. Don't believe the lie. Or we can be tempted to believe that we can be kicked out of the house, right? I cannot believe how God would accept me. That's kind of the whole point. You're not worthy, but he has made you worthy. And he will not kick you out. You can have full assurance of faith. The good news is that because you have been declared righteous by God, you can now approach God through faith in the Son of God. 
God's grip on you is tighter than your grip on him. Sometimes we get that the other way around. I just got to hold on tighter. Now his grip on you is tighter than your grip on him. God is the one who saved you. You didn't save yourself. It is because of Christ that you have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and your body has been washed pure, verse 22. The point of the latter part of verse 22 is that because you were saved, your constitution before God has changed. Because you were saved by the blood of Christ, God now views you as a changed person. The problem with some Christians have is that remaining sin can become like this anchor that's connected to a chain and you're just constantly dragging it around. But God sees your sin. He does. But He's forgiven you of your sin. And He calls you to repent. But also to receive the grace and mercy of God. God says to you, come to me. Over and over again, we need to hear that. Come to me. Because of faith in Christ and because of the righteousness of Christ, you can approach God and he does not reject you, but he helps you kill remaining sin. God and the power of the Holy Spirit leads you to kill the remaining sin. So once again, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And I would like to add this. There's no other way to draw near to God than through the blood of Jesus. There's no other way in our pluralistic culture that says there are many ways to approach God, here we see there's only one way to approach God, and that is by faith in the Son of God. This local church will only preach for one way for a person to draw near to God. That's it. There's no yoga instructor, new age teacher, or personal inner light that allows a person to draw near a holy God. Instead, it is Christ in which we have confidence. I want you to pick up on what the author of Hebrews says earlier in this sermon, and the book of Hebrews, I think, is a sermon. Because we are in Christ, and here's another oratory subjunctive, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, if you struggle with assurance of faith, let this passage from Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 10, for that matter, bring comfort to your soul. Boldly approach God in faith. Jesus invites you in. He's urging you in. The second subjunctive is in verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Uh, Notice another point of action here. First, you were encouraged to draw near. Now God's word says hold fast. You need to hold fast to what you know to be true. It's worth pointing out that our faith in God requires movement from us. So I said earlier, God's grip on you is tighter than your grip on him. That is true. But we do want to increase our grip on God. It requires an active faith. In other words, we are not passive in our faith. Christianity is not saying a prayer, getting saved, thinking it's all good, and you put your feet up and just relax. No, faith spurs us into action. And as it pertains to verse 23, we need to hold fast to what we know to be true, and we do so without wavering. In particular, we're called to hold fast to hope. And I do think there's an eschatological sense here with the word hope. The author of Hebrews is thinking forward. 
to what's to come. God's word wants us to consider our present circumstances in light of what is to come. So what is to come? There will be a day when Jesus will, will come back to physically redeem his elect people and restore everything. You see, we live in a broken world. We li- live in a world where death, suffering, decay, and sin remain. So while our present circumstances can seem crushing, they do not ultimately ruin us because there will be a day, a new day, when all is made right. So we can live knowing that he who promised is faithful, verse 23. Notice that while we are spurred into action, our hope is ultimately placed not in our actions. Like we're, we're spurred on into that, but our hope ultimately is in the faithfulness of Christ. You think about how transformative this truth can be when, you, when your life goes sideways, right? And life does go sideways. We all know that. Think about how transformative this truth can be when you are suffering. Holding fast to what is to come can lead you through the darkest days. Christian, just as much as you trust God's faithfulness to save you, you can trust in God for the day when he will finally rescue you from all the pain and all the suffering that exists in this world. So the exhortation is to hold fast. Here's the last exhortation. If the first two exhortations involve like our vertical relationship with God, this last exhortation involves the horizontal relationships we have with other brothers and sisters, specifically in the church. Here's verses 24 and 25 again. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need to be intentional in how we interact with one another in the body of Christ in the church. The idea of stirring one another up literally means to provoke. Now, you might have heard that word before, right? You ever had two siblings provoke each other? Like I, grew, like I said earlier, I grew up with three boys. A lot of provoking went on growing up. A lot of provoking. Well, when is provoking acceptable? Provoking is acceptable when it leads another person to a greater love for God and a greater love for others. It's acceptable when it spurs a brother or sister in Christ on to do good works. Like As a church community, we want to love well. We want our good works to be demonstrations of Christ-like love. Love is not merely an emotion, but it is a conscious decision, a conscious decision to tangibly show other people the love of Christ. We also want to consider how to lovingly encourage one another away from sin, right? Hebrews 3.13 says this, But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How do we practically work out Hebrews 3.13, which connects with our passage today? Your encouragement or exhortation is a powerful tool to help others fight sin. I have a couple more thoughts about the implications of verses 24 and 25. First, Christianity is to be done in community, right? We see that here, the local church. I've said this over and over throughout my years of ministry. While Jesus saves a person into his universal church, within his universal church are local churches where love and good works are expressed. And I've said this before, and I'll keep saying it again. There's no such thing as a homeless Christian. God has designed us 
to be connected to one another. A homeless Christian does not exist in the Bible. So when we gather together, we're looking up in our worship to God vertical while at the same time looking at the people who are right in front of us. When we express our love for God in worship and love, we provoke each other on to good works. We are living out God's design as a local church. Second, a Christ-centered church and a Christ-focused local church is a foretaste of what's to come. You know, I mentioned that word hope. The, the, another rendering of that could be eager expectation. Meeting with other believers on earth should look forward to the eschatological gathering, which should be obvious, but we might not talk enough about. Redemption Hill Church gathers with brothers and sisters in Christ, and there will be a day when all Christians will gather together in front of their Savior, Jesus Christ. So here should be a foretaste of what is to come. I've received um, a lot of compliments over the years about this particular local church, to which I will add this, that the one I receive the most and the one that I love to hear is that we love each other well. Even for those who are passing by, they come for a little while, then they move on because they moved or found a different church. I, I still hear that. We love each other well. The love we express to one another and to God is a foretaste of what is to come. Last, I highlight the importance of gathering because of what we read in verse 25. We must not miss the exhortation to not neglect to gather together. I think of all the encouragements or the exhortations that we read in this passage. This might be one of the most difficult to live out and perhaps the most difficult to hear. I'm pulling up my phone for a reason here because I'm going to read something that I learned this weekend. Um, and I usually don't do this, but I'm going to do it today. You know, the shutdown of 2020 and 2021, right? We all lived through that. Resulted in a lot of people rethinking what it means to be committed to a local church. It's kind of a third rail, but I like going after third rails. So here we go. I'm going to tell you some, uh, Barnard, Barnard Research did some studies, and here's what they found. It's pretty enlightening. One of five church churches were facing permanent closure 18 months into the pandemic. One of five. Over 1,000 church plants have closed. 10,000 pastors admitted to considering leaving the ministry during the pandemic. The number of people who stopped attending church online or otherwise was in the millions, and a high percentage have not yet returned to church. Now, there's multiple ways to diagnose those significant, uh, the significance of those uh, details. But it does raise a question of, why are some people not gathering? Why are they neglecting to gather? I have two thoughts. There are more, but two for today. Pa I think, one, pastors have failed to preach and persuade from the Scriptures God's design and expectations for the local church. The American evangelical pastor has been more concerned with entertainment and telling people what they want to hear. I'm going after my own tribe, like the guys I rub shoulders with, and I get that. 
the average American evangelical pastor has not been telling their people what they must hear. Namely, we must gather so that we can stir each other up to loving good works. So I lay blame partly at a lot of people that I rub shoulders with, other pastors. I also believe we live in a generation where commitment is scary for various reasons. To say it differently, we might be a part of the most uncommitted generation in human history. I'm just not talking about a lack of commitment to the local church. Take a look at marriage statistics, job changes, and a lack of investment into the civil community, right? The local community. Everyone's so transient. Commitment has never been more difficult. And my clarion call from Hebrews 10 is to be a people who are willing to be the exception to what we see in the culture, especially when it comes to the biblical mandate. Yes, I intentionally use the word mandate. The biblical mandate to gather. There are many reasons a person... Uh, can use to not meet with other Christians on Sunday mornings, community groups, having coffee, whatever. But there should not be a more special place on earth than for you to be with the body of Christ, right? Christ's bride, the church. It does not matter your IQ, your theological acumen, what kind of gifts you have to offer, or how many Bible verses you have or have not memorized. It does not matter if you became a Christian yesterday or if you've been walking with the Lord for 30 years. The local church, this local church, is a place where you can grow in your relationship with God as other people come around you to grow. And guess what? You have the great privilege to come alongside other people. This is a place where you receive encouragement when life is hard. When you endure suffering, others will carry that burden with you. This is a local church that will constantly encourage you to find your hope in Christ. You will be pointed to Jesus from this pulpit, and hopefully when you're talking with friends after church. If you want to live your Christian life as God designed it, move toward the local church and receive all that God has for you from His church. His church. God's church. So, in closing, when we gather... Let us be bold as we read in Hebrews 10, knowing that Christ has granted us access to God through his blood. May we draw near with full assurance of faith, knowing that your life has been purchased by God. May you never neglect to meet together, knowing that God has placed you in a local church where you are spurred on. To what end? To become more like your Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.